0: this is reset i'm sasha ann simons glad to be with you this morning service providers and volunteers in chicago are scrambling to find shelter and warm clothes for people without a place to live that includes thousands of migrants some of them sleeping in tents outside of police stations as these temperatures drop as well as people who are homeless now it's clear chicago has a housing problem and it makes us wonder how did we get here who is this impacting and what will fix the problem? Let's explore those questions with a panel of local housing and policy experts. Our first guests are Bob Palmer, the Policy Director for Housing Action Illinois. That's a nonprofit that's working to end homelessness and expand affordable housing. Welcome back to Reset, Bob. Thank you. And Roderick Wilson is Executive Director of Eugenia Burns Hope Center. The Bronzeville Group works on housing education, senior issues and mutual aid. Thanks for joining us, Rod. Thank you. I'll start with you, Rod. Before we dive Mm -hmm. in, there are a couple of things that I think we should clarify, right? We're talking about housing Mm -hmm. in Chicago, and there are different kinds of housing, Mm -hmm. including affordable, public, Mm -hmm. and low-income housing. Mm -hmm. Talk about how those are different, because it can be easy, I think, for folks to use them interchangeably. Yeah.
1: First, when it comes to affordable housing, it's a catch-all phrase. It just means anything that's not market rate. So it's not a set thing. Um, You have uh, low-income housing tax credits. That could be considered affordable housing. Now, first I want to define affordability means you're only paying 30% of your income towards your housing cost, your rent. That means it's affordable to you across the board. Now, say you're in a low-income housing tax credit building. Um, that's based off of 60% of AMI. AMI, I think, is 110,000. 60% is around 66,000. So you're paying 30% of the income of someone who makes 66,000. You necessarily may not be making that 60% of income, you income know, of AMI. You might not be making that 66,000. You might be making 40,000. But you're still paying 30% of that 66,000. So it's not affordable for you. Or you come in making it, and then the affordability goes up. I mean, the, uh, income, the income guidelines go up. Yeah. But your and when income does you say
0: AMI. You're talking about the area median income, income.
1: That's right. Which does not. Which includes more than Chicago proper. It includes It includes the surrounding areas, which takes the. It's higher than what Chicago median income is. Yeah. But so you could be anyone, and then over the years end up paying forty, fifty, sixty percent of your income toward rent. But they would consider it affordable housing because it's not market rate. P- public housing is um, federally funded housing. You have public housing developments, which are the standalones. You have a project-based Section 8. Um, and then in those, you're paying 30% of your income no matter what your income is. So if your income goes down, then what you pay goes down. If it goes up, what you pay goes up. Got so it. that's real affordable housing. But and even we have another thing in Chicago, um, the ARO, ARO Ordinance, the Affordable Requirements Ordinance, passed late 2000s. And it said that, you know, say you um a developer, buy some land, and they want it in a zone for six units, but they want to build 100 units on it because they got to get the, ch- the zoning changed. It's an inclusionary zoning ordinance because they got to get the zoning changed. And the city can require them to pay to make 10 percent of that affordable house. Yeah. OK. But that affordability is based. It's supposed to go up to 60 percent of the AMI. Of course, everybody went 60 percent AMI. If you made 50%, you were not get in there, 40%, 30%, 20%, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it always went to the high end because that's because uh, everything is market-driven. So mm-hmm. we have changed that to make it certain percentages have to be 60, certain have to be 30%, certain have to be, you know, 50%. So we include more folks who need housing because if I have a full-time job at $15 an hour, which is almost twice the federal for, uh, minimum wage, I make 28000 a year. I'm not even at 30% AMI. Yeah. So I could be working full-time. And I can't afford what considered affordable housing in Chicago.
0: And that right there is the issue. Bob, let's bring you in. We When we say Chicago is experiencing a housing crisis, what types of, of housing are we talking about? Is it a crisis then of, of all the types of housing that Rod just broke down for us?
2: Well, it, you were asking about the overall problem and kind of the roots of that. So, you know, in our society, including in the Chicago uh Area. Most people get their housing from the private market, and if your income is at a certain level, then that works fairly well uh, for you. But if you look at, you know, home ownership, uh, affordable rental housing, uh, particularly for people with the lowest incomes, the private market just doesn't work. Uh, the costs that are involved in maintaining and operating uh, apartments are such in terms of you know paying property taxes, making sure the electricity is on, paying for the heat, and so forth it's really, really challenging to charge rents that are affordable to people with the lowest uh, incomes. So if you look at who has the most severe housing problems in our society, at least in terms of rental housing or people experiencing homelessness, it's really those people in the extremely low-income category. And overall in Illinois, there's a shortage of about 300,000 rental units for people in that extremely low-income category, and that's mostly all in the Chicago uh, metro area. So,
0: um, when we talk about housing issues, are problems renting and owning different?
2: Well, it's relative to your situation. Again, affordable housing—it's all totally relative. Yeah. You know, if you're earning, but I think
0: you're—you were focused there on, on home ownership, so I want to make sure. Well, that I, I did—I did make a
2: quick mention of home ownership, but the numbers I quoted were on uh, rental housing. But uh, you know, affordable housing is a really general term for somebody who earns, you know, $300,000 a year, Mm -hmm. there's something out there that's affordable to them. There's certain housing that isn't affordable to them, but they can get their needs met in the private market very easily. But for those extremely low income households, uh, again, those are the people who are uh, renters, Uh, that for the most part, three-quarters of extremely low-income renters are paying more than 50% of their income for housing across the state. It's very much the same in the Chicago metro uh, area. And essentially, in our society, housing is a competitive thing. And if you have adequate income, you're going to be able to afford housing. But if your income uh, is not adequate, you're kind of out of luck in this competition, which is why it's so important that we have Uh, The type of public resources that Mm -hmm. Rod was talking about, public housing, housing choice vouchers, Mm -hmm. low-income housing tax credits, to uh, create the housing that the private market is not creating on its own.
0: Rod, many advocates say it's the high cost of housing, as well as the lack of affordable housing, that leads one to homelessness. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: What's your response to folks who say being homeless is either, one, a personal failure, Mm -hmm. or two it's a result of someone's addiction or mental health condition
1: I think those are just ignorant statements who doesn't who doesn't know what people are going through um I think so thing about homelessness is again it goes back to everything is market driven everything is based on how much money someone can make on it again like I said I could be working 40 hours a week and I could be homeless because I can't afford an affordable housing unit Meaning that it is affordable, not market rate, because if I'm making twenty, because I'm making fifteen dollars an hour, I'm making twenty four hundred dollars a month. The average two bedroom in Chicago is what seventeen hundred. So yeah. if I'm making twenty four hundred grossing, I'm only bringing home about maybe two. So is ninety percent of my income supposed to go toward housing? So I just, I think there is this thing when it comes to people who are uh, low income who uh, may be in these situations, we see them a certain way. But that's a society And I think that's also, to me, it's th- part of the, thought, the threat of racism that, that cuts through the society, that we don't um, recognize housing should be a right for everyone. And it's on government to make sure that that's the case. And right now, it's, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Government works for typically the business class and typically for industry, not as much for people. Um there's a thing that you know we've been advocating for for the ban uh, lifting the ban on rent control, which would cost the state nothing, and then you can begin to regulate how much a landlord can raise their income right now a landlord can double your rent triple your rent from lease to lease, and that's not right that's not fair that's not anything. So what we're saying is people going into communities three to five years and then they gotta go somewhere else, yeah, and they gotta go so how can you build community how can you develop boots how can you get to know your neighbors how can you be how can the community be safe if it's constantly moving based off of how greedy and the price gouging that happens now not all landlords do this but we do see a lot of it especially when in gentrifying communities
2: yeah
0: and, and we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, later in the discussion i, I want to back us up a little bit bob mm-hmm. how did we get here uh you know rod brings up some great points i'm also thinking about redlining in chicago mm-hmm. right you know that practice of denying um eligible or, or credit worthy people services like loans or insurance benefits um, just based off of where they live and and because they're seen as this quote financial risk right <laughs> so i mean talk about redlining and how that's impacted just the kinds of housing options that are available to folks especially black people in chicago
2: well yes and redlining again going back to homeownership, You know, is particularly uh, harmful in terms of limiting people's access to mortgages and restricting where people um, could live. But there, if we were to go back to focusing on rental housing, um, another an example of another type of uh, public policy that has largely had uh, negative impacts is zoning, and particularly in Illinois, but this is true all around the country. That Uh, Local governments can make decisions about what type of housing they will and will not allow in their community. So, for example, in many suburbs of Chicago, it's very difficult to have any uh, apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. Or even, again, for homeownership, um, requirements about lot sizes and minimum setbacks mean that you can only really build big, expensive housing and you can't build, you know, Homes that would be affordable to first-time home buyers or people of more moderate um, means. Even in many communities, and this is true in uh, parts of Chicago, you know you can't build a two or three or four flat. And so we know these are very sensitive um, uh, issues because of uh, that I think are tied to um, unfair conceptions about affordable housing, and for some people, when they think about affordable housing, they just think about, well, that means public housing. But Mm -hmm. really, it's much broader than that. And Affordable housing is something that everyone needs. It's a basic human need. And again, we should be treating in our society housing as a basic human right. Mm -hmm. But instead, we're, again, and the private market, again, works well for many people. But if we just leave housing to the private market, a lot of people are going to be left out, and that's yeah. exactly why we have homelessness mm-hmm. uh, today yeah, and so in such a housing you're, And you're shortage. touching there on policy
0: yeah. that continues to make housing an issue. Right. You know, we've also seen numerous housing projects like Cabrini-Green, mm-hmm. the Robert Taylor Homes, mm-hmm. demolished in the 90s and early 2000s. They were home to thousands of Chicagoans, mm-hmm. right? Fast forward, now we're seeing this trend of building mixed-income housing. How's mm-hmm. that going, Rod?
1: It's not going well at all. I mean, because when they started demolishing the public housing, there was this promise. They were going to bring back a, a fraction of the housing that was there. Only a fraction was supposed to come back. So what ended up happening is that fraction that was, oh, they're, they're bringing back a fraction of a fraction of that. So at the Harold Ackes home, you had 1,000 units of public housing. Um, they started building back some of the units. They they're saying they're only going to bring back 240 units of the public housing that was there. They have They built about, they built about 80 units at the Ablo homes. You had three thousand five hundred ninety six units of public housing. Only seven hundred and fifty of the public housing is supposed to come back. They built 245 and then under the administration decided to give 25 acres of vacant land to a billionaire that owned Chicago Fire soccer team to build a training facility and soccer fields. And Robert Taylor home, you had 4,400 units of public housing, 800 units supposed to come back. They built about 350, 400 units, and they gave a block of land to a program called Excess Tennis mm-hmm. without building back the housing. So it's not going good because— the what we were promised, the small amount we were promised, we're not. We haven't been given back. And, so, and the problem with this is that we see development as the geography of a particular area, the neighborhood. We don't see it as the community, the people. If we saw development, we need to change that paradigm. How do we make the existing population's quality of life better? then we'll do it differently. Because our organization advocated when they first came with the Plans Transformation, let's not get rid of all the public housing once. Let's turn down a building, build some housing, bring the people back, then go to the next building so you don't lose people. Mm-hmm. People who are there could benefit from it. They didn't do that. For the first time in history, they gave people Section 8 vouchers. They would just hand them in public housing, and now you can use them outside of Chicago. So what ended up happening was, it was a public-funded depopulation of black people out of Chicago. And people went to Minnesota, Iowa, uh Indiana Wisconsin and those folks then came back and yeah. so we lost 300,000 people went from 52% 52% of the population to 28% mainly because of the plan for transformation directly indirectly those directly for those families there and indirectly for the black folks yeah. who live in those communities who could not afford to live there once the public housing and what's
0: lived. the plan for the people who have been here this right. entire time it has
1: to be focused on the folks that's there not let's bring in the Starbucks, let's bring in the Whole Foods, the things that they can't afford that makes the community look better, but it's not improving the quality of life for the people that's there now because then you'll be putting different things within the community.
0: And we're back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. Chicago, like many cities across the country, doesn't have enough affordable housing for residents. It's not a new problem, but it is one that is getting worse as thousands of asylum seekers arrive in the city and as homelessness continues to be a major issue. We're still here with Bob Palmer, who's the policy director for Housing Action Illinois, a nonprofit working to end homelessness and expand affordable housing in Chicago, and Roderick Wilson, executive director of Eugenia Burns Hope Center. That's a Bronzeville-based community organization focused on housing education and mutual aid. Bob, as I mentioned here, we're seeing these two realities in Chicago. We've got neighborhoods with too little investment, and then we got these so-called hot neighborhoods where rents and home prices have gone up fast, and it's forcing some longtime residents out. That can feel like two extremes. I wonder what you make of it.
2: Well, yes, it is two extremes, and I think the cause of that is again the fact that the housing market, uh, again, primarily relying on the private market. in Our situation we've sort of this competition for the you know the housing that people want to live in, based on uh, you know what the housing looks like, the quality of the housing, is it close to public transportation, is it close to shopping, and because there's this overall shortage, when a neighborhood becomes more attractive, uh, when the when it's more affordable, then more and more people want to go there, and all of a sudden, it's not affordable, mm-hmm. or over years it becomes not affordable, and mm-hmm. people wind up getting uh, displaced. And you know, the housing market reflects uh, kind of the problems in our society with uh, systemic racial and economic mm-hmm. inequality. And so, in this competitive market, you know, again, to support people who are very much disproportionately people of color mm-hmm. who wind up losing. So we really need to change the uh, paradigm that we have for housing in our society, that it is a basic human right and that we need the public resources to make sure that everyone can afford it.
0: I want to go back to something Rod brought up earlier, and uh, it's a focus on renting. Mm -hmm. Let me hear from both of you briefly on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us more, Rod, about the role that you think landlords play in this crisis.
1: I think, you know, landlords, especially those larger conglomerates, those larger landlords, they are price gouging folks. And as, and as we've seen that, we've seen it in Brownsville, we've seen it in Pilsen, we've seen it in Logan Square. You know, they want to clear out a building, they'll double, triple the rent, push people out, and then they to bring in a different gentry, a different demographic into the community. Even after COVID, we saw 12, 13, 14, 15% increases in rent. And, you know, folks' income didn't go up, but they can do it because no one regulates them. And I think that's the thing that we have to really get control of because rent should not just be at the whim of whatever someone thinks they can get from it. I mean, I know we live in a capitalist society. I get that. But that doesn't help the people, the people, especially the most vulnerable, those those who are working full time Mm -hmm. and still can't afford to live there. And that's where the role of government comes in. Government has to work for all the people, not just those who are in business, not just those who are – Landowners or, or landlords and that type of thing. But sometimes those low-income working families get left out because they can't contribute to a campaign, whereas landlords and the real estate lobby can. And so those those elected officials then lend their, their policy toward them instead of the people that they're supposed to be serving.
0: Right. Well, here's the thing. We, we've talked— quite a bit with landlords here on Mm -hmm. on Reset and renters. Um, When I talk to landlords, though, uh, many of them say, Bob, that inflation's been a major issue for them in the Mm -hmm. last few years. And uh, they've got no choice but to pass on some of those costs to their renters. And they say that they're just beholden to market forces, just like everybody
2: else. What do you think? I think there is quite a bit of truth in that. Obviously, there's a lot of different landlords you can find all different uh, prices and perspectives and so forth. But, you know, in terms of solutions, one important resource that comes from the federal government is the Housing Choice Voucher Program. And in Illinois, about 95,000 households are able to afford their rent through a Housing Choice Voucher. But we know nationally only about one in four households that would income qualify for a Housing Choice Voucher are able to get it in the Chicago area, pretty much at every housing authority, all the waiting lists are closed. You have to wait, you know, a decade or more if you're fortunate enough to be on the waiting list to get a voucher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that would be an example in terms of helping people uh, to be able to pay the rent uh, to increase the number of housing choice vouchers. But then on the other side, we need to be increasing the housing stock so that there are more. Uh, there's more choice, more resources, Uh, more affordable apartments available to everyone. And that's actually something that both for-profit and non-profit landlords can participate in through uh, programs like the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program from the federal government or a variety of other uh, uh, housing uh, uh, production programs that are out there. I'm going to add
0: another voice to the conversation. Mm -hmm. That's Antonio Gutierrez, who works on strategic development and operations as co-founder of Organizing Communities Against Deportation. They're also co-founder of the Autonomous Tenants Union. Welcome, Antonio. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Tell us about the work that the Autonomous Tenants Union does uh, when it comes to organizing renters and and the biggest issues that you're seeing right now.
3: Yes. So over, over the last six years since ATU started, we have seen how undocumented immigrants specifically really have a lot of issues when accessing housing. Uh, from credit reports that are requested at the application process, from having a form of ID, or even like a steady income or a social security number, which many of these things undocumented immigrants do not have. So ultimately, right, the crisis that we're dealing right now at hand has been going on for decades, uh, and it has been very unfair to undocumented immigrants overall.
0: Um, Your organization is a neighborhood uh, organization well, actually, let me get Rod's take here. I wonder what goes through your mind when you hear about issues that the city is having also housing asylum seekers.
1: I think, you know, what we saw under the life of the administration, we saw that the city turns on a dime to begin to build housing for uh, migrants who come in who, who desperately need housing. But there's also a population of folks who've been in Chicago that needed housing. And we never seen the city turn a dime for those folks like that, which says, you know, a brother of mine, g 2 Brown, always says, budgets are based on priority. You know, because the migrant issue was a nationally publicized, publicized issue, there was this prioritization of it. All the thousands of, uh, of homeless folks in Chicago who were sleeping in tents on the side of the expressway or just – Couch surfing from home to home. Yeah. You know, they didn't get that same type of response over the last generations, you know. So, this issue, you know, with migrants, I think we have not to see it as a migrant issue, but as a housing issue and and a a homeless issue. So that we look at getting these resources for all those that need housing, not just prioritize a group that's coming because they need housing. And and, and this, you know, we just did a, an event um, uh, with an organization that hopes is a part of the United Congress, a community religious organizations, looking at the some of the core reasons why the migrant issue has happened, mm-hmm. and it's based off of um, U.S. policies that have destabilized Venezuela, the same kind of policies that we have in our community in the Black community that destabilized us. So we can't see them as like. We can't list them against us. No, this is a homeless issue. This is a housing issue across the board. And we need all the resources to help us get to this issue, you know, to be able to deal with this issue. But it has to be across the board for everybody.
0: Yeah. Uh, Antonio, uh, let's, let's um, piggyback off that here. I want to mention that you are co-founder of the Albany Park Defense Network. Albany Park's a, a neighborhood on the northwest side with lots of different immigrant groups uh, who speak many different languages we know that this housing crisis is impacting new arrivals, to, to Rod's point. Talk more about what you see as the intersections here.
3: Yes, of course. So, yes, I have lived in Albany Park, one of the most diverse neighborhoods, for about 10 years now. Um, and overall, ultimately what we have seen, right, is that there's instability around housing for many groups of people in the city. Uh, and right now, what is happening with the influx of the recently arrived like asylum seekers, right, is that it's highlighting a lot of those inaccuracies and, and also lack of affordable housing uh, as bob was mentioning overall right uh, immigrants in general whenever they don't have a legal status to stay in this country they're not able to benefit out of for example the chicago housing authority housing voucher. They don't mm-hmm. have access to public housing. And so they're always a risk of imminent eviction. Mm-hmm. We actually have supported many tenants where mass eviction occurs mm-hmm. after a new owner buys a building that was kind of organically affordable. Be, most of the times because of the conditions that exist in those buildings, right? People not have dignified apartments, but regardless of that being inexpensive enough for them to afford it then a new owner comes in, evicts everybody, and then increases the rent to any th- any amount that they want or that the market will allow it, increasing the price for everybody else in the neighborhood as well. Yeah. And of course, decreasing the amount of stock of affordable housing that we have in the city, which the city is also not creating on its own, right? Mm-hmm. So when you take out uh, subtract housing through those methods, that are allowed through this capitalist system and you're not creating any, of course, there's gonna be a shortage of housing that is only gonna be highlighted when you have an influx of so many new Mm -hmm. individuals coming to our communities, which we're seeing uh, at the process, right, of people having to stay at the police stations, Mm -hmm. having to influx and increase the amount of shelter uh, beds that we have. But ultimately, we believe that increasing the the number of beds in shelters, we have seen that has not solved the housing crisis that we have dealt for decades in the city on the contrary it increases the notion right that if you don't have um you don't have access to housing it's because you have done something wrong mm-hmm. because of how we see housing as a commodity and not a human right
1: right sasha can i add one thing the same priority we're giving housing now for, you know, the migrant community. If we've done, if we would have did that five years ago for the homeless population, 10, 15, 20 years ago. We would have been in a different place now. We would be able to handle this a lot differently. But it wasn't a priority. It wasn't important. I'm thinking whenever there's a challenge, there's an opportunity. And I think for the city of Chicago, there's an opportunity to say we need to house everyone so that, you know, we, we, we would have been, diff- been in a different place. We would have the, the system set up. We wouldn't have to be dealing with, Two different type of homeless populations. Either we could have we could be dealing with just that, but I think the issue has been it's never been a value on those who have been unhoused and homeless in the city of Chicago because they're not affluent. You know, they they're not maybe meeting with their alderman or someone else. They're they're like a hidden population that's within the city that we need to make sure that everyone gets what they need to thrive in the city of Chicago, not just some folks.
0: So so Bob. Let's continue looking forward, right? We're struggling with temporary housing solutions at the moment. Mm -hmm. How do we even begin to think about permanent housing solutions? Does it require a big shift in the way that we are thinking about this?
2: It does require a big shift, but there are lots of great existing uh, programs and policies that are helping uh, improve the problem, although it's still obviously very bad and there's this huge shortage I mentioned Housing Choice Vouchers, the federal government is really crucially important in providing resources, but mm. uh, Governor Pritzker has done some very good things in terms of increasing investments in the Home Illinois state plan to prevent and end homelessness. Uh, we're very excited that the Bring Chicago Home, Chicago ordinance to uh, create more resources through the uh, making the real estate transfer tax progressive is seems to be uh, moving forward mm-hmm. and, um, There's also, for example, just one thing, a new funding opportunity that's available through the Biden uh, administration that the uh, local regional area agency for planning is applying for in addition to the city of Chicago and some other communities that will provide some financial resources for communities to look and try and address how maybe zoning in their community is an obstacle to creating more affordable housing. And so hopefully those uh, applications will get funded.
0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. As we continue our discussion around Chicago's housing crisis, we got to look forward. Yes, there are problems with the system, but what needs to change? We'll turn now to Erica Pothig. She is Executive Vice President for Strategy and Planning for the Civic Community of the Commercial Club of Chicago. That group works with leaders around the city to promote social and economic change in areas from public safety to education to technology. Erica was formerly a Special Assistant to President Joe Biden for Housing and Urban Policy on the White House Domestic Policy Council. Welcome to the program, Erica. Thank you, Sasha. Good to have you. So we've been talking, you've been listening, Mm -hmm. uh, and we're discussing, you know, how did we get to this place that we're in now when it comes to
4: Chicago's housing crisis? What else do you want to add to what we've discussed so far? Thank you. And it's been a great conversation and I appreciate learning uh, a little bit more. I've been um, in D.C. for the last 14 years, so recently returned to Chicago. So looking at these issues from a national perspective. So something I wanted to add uh, for context is, um, and I think Bob said this uh, earlier, only one quarter of the people who are eligible for the affordable housing resources, the federal housing resources, receive them. So housing is a lottery. Um, and that is, stands in contrast to some of the other um, basic needs that people need met um, in this country, like health care, which is a, uh, an entitlement. So one of the things that we all face around the country in the United States is affordable housing is an under-resourced need and has been for decades. And that's been um, true. It is usually also a family's largest expense. So when uh, a family pays more for housing because their rent has increased, well, that's crowding out another investment, maybe in their kid's education, maybe in their ability to get to work. So that's why we also need Congress to act um, and we can get into this on uh, some of the kinds of policies that can help address the housing affordability challenges in Chicago and elsewhere. Something else I just would add to this, looking at it from a national perspective, um, is, and this may may be challenging and, and my colleagues here may disagree, but when you look around the country, Chicago's affordability, housing affordability, is actually one of its Assets. We've talked about um, relative, you know, housing affordability is a relative concept to someone's income. Well, Chicago is actually relatively more affordable um, than some of the larger cities on the coast. And so when we look at homelessness, for instance, we have a challenge in Chicago, but we are also, um, have been for decades, addressing homelessness in a more proactive way than some of our other. Um, like-sized cities. So you're talking about like New York or L.A.? New York, L.A., um, Seattle, San Francisco. And there's a, a professor from the University of Washington, Greg Coburn, who wrote this great book called um, "Housing Homelessness is a Housing Problem. And he looked at Chicago because Chicago actually has a relatively lower rate of homelessness than some of the other cities of its equivalent size. And that's because um, Chicago and the state of Illinois have taken steps to provide more options um, using state, local, federal resources to proactively address homelessness. So, so
0: let's dig into some of those things. Let's start. Let's go back to the federal yeah. level. Tell me what's what's happening right now to address this this problem. And then we'll get into Illinois and Chicago.
4: So obviously COVID has been a major challenge. But in the American Rescue Plan, there were significant resources allocated to addressing housing, not the least of which was more than $50 billion for emergency rental assistance to make sure that people were not evicted from their homes and did not become homeless. That is a historic number of resources. There was also about $10 billion allocated to address homelessness through the Emergency Housing Voucher Program and through something called HOME, which can invest in permanent supportive housing options to address homelessness. So together, these were historic resources that have been allocated at the federal level. But over the last few budget cycles, um, President Biden has also asked Congress to increase um the rental assistance. So we talked about housing choice vouchers. Um, In on the campaign, he wanted to make sure that all those who were eligible, the three quarters of people who aren't receiving rental assistance today, would receive it. So um, that involves making a request to Congress to increase the number of housing vouchers. So in the last number of budgets, he's asked for 200,000 additional vouchers. Congress has up until this point um, allocated resources for thirty five thousand additional vouchers. Okay. We heard Bob say there are ninety thousand. You know, Illinois and Chicago get some share of that rental assistance. Um, that's a major request, and making it an entitlement for kids um, aging out of foster care and for extremely low income veterans. These are some of the proposals that the administration has put on the table for Congress's consideration.
0: I see. You've said before that it was policy that created these problems, Erica. So is it more policy that's the solution to fixing this?
4: Yeah. So one thing that I um, want to name and you've named it and um, Bob and Robert Roderick have named it is one of the challenges facing Chicago is um, the racial segregation that was frankly created via policy um, through redlining, for instance. And the Federal Home Housing Administration at HUD uh, contributed to that redlining. Um, and so that is policy that created the conditions that we face today because mm-hmm. of people's constrained opportunity uh, and the under-resourced and under-invested neighborhoods that were resulted. Policy is going to have to reverse that, too. And... Um, that comes through budgetary uh, investments like the ones I described, Mm -hmm. but also some other important um, policy like uh, the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, What's that? That is, um, so, and I would just name Gail Sincada, who is a Chicago organizer, legendary uh, in the city, but in the country. Um, And she led a movement here in Chicago and nationally to, uh, um, Raise attention to the practice of redlining, which you know, was banks essentially saying we will not lend in these neighborhoods, right? The Community Reinvestment Act is a set of um, requirements and regulations that the um, those that regulate the um, you know, large banks and community banks um, at, have to follow um, to make sure that where they're taking deposits, is also where they're lending resources. The um, Federal Reserve Bank, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the FDIC, all just last week or two weeks ago, published a new updated, modernized Community Reinvestment Act regulation Mm -hmm. that will uh, ensure that um, banks are being held accountable to making sure they're making investments in uh, neighborhoods um, that have been traditionally underinvested in. So we've been talking about uh, how there are these two dynamics,
0: two sides when it comes to the affordability of housing, yeah. right? I'm talking about uh, income and then the price yep. of housing. Uh, so talk more about policy that you could, you think could address both sides, the price side of the issue and then the income side, um, and whether you think it's possible at all to fix housing issues without addressing both.
4: Yeah, no, you have to address both for okay. sure. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about the supply side of this. So um, at the federal level in March 2022, the Biden administration put out a housing supply action plan because Bob pointed out earlier that supply is one of the challenges that we face when we don't have enough supply of affordable housing. Prices will rise. It's constrained, right? Right. So we need to increase supply across the country. We are 1.5 million units short of enough housing Um, and that is also true here in chicago especially for extremely low-income people and part of the solution is the supply so um, there has been on the table for congress's consideration increasing the resources to increase the supply like the low-income housing tax credit as an example so we need more federal investments um, to increase the supply of housing that's up for congress right now to decide whether um, to make uh, that make that policy okay On the income side, you know, one of the challenges is it costs too much to build housing than people can afford. We've talked about this. Roderick talked about the share of people's income. It just doesn't pencil out. And so one of the ways we pencil it out is through supply side subsidies that help bring down the cost of what it takes to build, but also rental assistance, which fills in the gap between what it costs to operate housing and what someone can afford. So... Um, so those vouchers we talked about. Those earlier. vouchers are that form of rental assistance that helps fill in that gap. We can also increase income. So one of the things that was also part of the American Rescue Plan was the child tax credit. We know that child the child tax credit cut poverty, childhood poverty by 50%. That is an income supplement. Um, And that we know people use some of that for paying for their housing, Um, whether it was to supplement existing subsidy or to fill in the gaps. Because as we've said, only three quarters, only one quarter of the people who um, are eligible for affordable housing resources get them. So those other three quarters may have used that um, to pay for their housing.
0: Going back to our discussion earlier, we got to address that the issue of housing. It's it's different when we're talking about renting versus owning, right? So, uh, what do you think is important to keep in mind about these two different things when it comes to solutions?
4: Yeah. Well, um, first and foremost, um, we have a, and this is true for Chicago. It's around the country. We have um, a gap between. Uh, black and brown households that are homeowners and White House. So we have a part of the racial wealth gap is associated with the gap we face in homeownership access. So one of the things we have to do is we have to be ensuring that we are providing um, access to capital um, to um, low, moderate income Americans, but also thinking about how to do this in more equitable ways so that people can get opportunities to become homeowners. In Chicago, one of the ways folks have Um, built their wealth is by purchasing two to four unit properties. And Bob talked about that is an incredibly important part of um, Chicago's rental housing supply. Um, It represents something like 35% of Chicago's rental stock are in two to four unit buildings. Well, 50% of those two to four unit buildings are owner occupied. And they're oftentimes... um, You know, owned by um, black and brown homeowners who are then renting out that housing. So it's like it's an important way um, to ways in which uh, homeownership and rental housing interact. But we've lost a lot of those two to four unit buildings, um, which is, I think, contributing to the housing affordability challenges that we're facing. So one of the things we have to do is we have to shore up those two to four unit properties by um, focusing on. Um, for closure prevention, mm-hmm. to keep those homeowners in place who be, are the providers of rental housing, but also look for ways to bring new kinds of capital through community development financial institutions, CDFIs, like Community reinv- uh, community Investment Corporation, CIC, um, who are helping to finance some of those kind of two to four unit properties, which are an essential supply of rental housing, especially unsubsidized uh, rental housing. On the program yesterday, Erica, we talked about rising property
0: tax bills, Mm -hmm. perfect timing. Uh, We got homeowners who were calling in, and um, some were saying they've left. I remember a woman called Mm -hmm. from Indiana, said she left years ago. Other folks were saying they're considering leaving Cook County uh, just because of the fact that their bills have increased substantially. They simply can't afford it Mm -hmm. anymore. Um, One caller also asked about an alternative to the property tax system. Is there
4: a way to pay for services like public schools without raising people's property taxes? So, um, every state or city can decide how to finance um, their, you know, their, put what revenues they choose to uh, finance their services. And we rely heavily in uh, Illinois and in Chicago on the property tax. Um, system to be able to do that and property taxes are paid by commercial property owners businesses um, as well as homeowners and right. um, there's been an effort to make sure that um, the there's a more balanced and fair system um, through the assessment but one of the challenges in the last couple of years um, has been that the commercial the value of commercial properties Has declined as as people are not using those office spaces in the same kind of ways. We've heard seen a lot of stories about the downtown vacancies, and so that shows up then in the burdens that people are paying for. you know, through their property taxes. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I would say we need to focus on is how to make sure that we have a healthy central business district and set of commercial properties that are um, also... Um, contributing to the tax base in the city. So last week, for instance, the White House had rolled out a new set of policies focused on um, supporting the conversion of commercial properties to residential properties. Um, many of these are in the downtown area, like LaSalle Street, for instance. And uh, making um, you know less than market rate uh, financing available to support the kinds of development that would... Um, be next to transit, and supply affordable housing. We need to take those kinds of steps, too, to shore up um, some of the kinds of assets that are contributing to that tax base so that we can afford the services um, that are important to our city. Yeah. Um, but it is today true that um, this we rely heavily upon the property tax um, for financing services. I
0: want to make good use of the last two minutes I have with you, Erica. Uh, first up, uh, Chicago City Council, they're going to meet today most likely with a vote to put the Bring Chicago Home ordinance on the March primary ballot. And I want to be clear to folks listening that this is not going to be a vote to put it in action, just to have it on the ballot as a referendum Mm -hmm. question. Now, that ordinance, Bring Chicago Home, it's going to raise uh, the city's tax rate, uh, if approved, on on properties that are sold for over a million dollars. It would also lower tax rates on properties sold less than that and the money would be used to help fund homeless services. Are you in agreement of that approach,
4: concerns? Um, We, as the Civic Committee, have not taken a position uh, on um, that policy. So Erica Pothig um, uh, thinks that, and you heard me say earlier, um, affordable housing is an under-resourced part of what is an important platform for people's um, livelihood. Um, at the same time, I think it's really, really critical that we have a good plan, mm-hmm. always. You think um, there's a better way to do this? A better way to raise money? Mm-hmm. Or um, I um, think that those alternatives are worth uh, debating, um, but it is you know, one source of income. I think the, the challenge with the real estate transfer tax is it's a very lumpy, Um, tax and very dependent upon transactions. Um, And uh, if you're going to fund affordable housing services through that um, tax, I think you have to be very careful about what your commitments you're making uh, because uh, you can't rely upon a steady um, source every year.
0: We'll leave it there. We've been talking with Erica Pothig of the Civic Community of the Commercial Club of Chicago. Thank you so much, Erica.
4: Yeah, thank you.